Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to take a Sunday off from Exodus and Talking about a passage we've looked at before, but, um, but I think will be good for us to talk about in light of um, the weekend. First um, Peter 2 will be in verses 9 through 17 this morning. Um, in the early times of Christianity, the church was persecuted um, by the Roman Empire. The first 300 years, that was the uh, big force that they faced was the Roman Empire, the Jewish nation too, but the Jews came to an end in 70 AD, so beyond that it was the Romans that they were facing. The Roman Empire owned the entire world at the time pretty much, from like um, from, from England to, to Italy, from England to India, that whole expanse that the Roman Empire owned. And um, the Roman government believed the emperor was worthy of worship. Christians couldn't worship the emperor though for obvious reasons. The culture gladly did. The culture would worship the emperor no problem, the same way our culture often worships the newest political leader as their hope uh, for prosperity. That's what they would do. Christians couldn't do that. But Christians otherwise were good citizens. They were. They, they, they sought for the good of the world they lived in because that's what Jesus told them to do. He said, you're the light of the world, so light is supposed to enlighten the darkness. And you're the salt of the earth. The salt is supposed to um, be good for the earth. Um, you know, all the way back to Genesis 2, when God had told Adam to take care of the garden he lived in. That's, that's our call. And um, there was even a point I, I couldn't find. I, I've heard this story before, but I couldn't find the exact account to, to to quote it to you, but there's a point in those first 300 years of history where the church goes to the Roman government and says, you got to stop persecuting us. We're your best citizens. You need us to, for our nation to thrive. You've got to stop doing this because they sought for the good of their, of their nation. And that's a picture of what it's like in our context as well. As we sang these songs this morning, as we prayed for our nation, we're in many ways putting forth our hopes and desires before God for the nation we live in. We want God to bless our nation, not so we can puff ourselves up, but so goodness and beauty and joy can prosper in the land, so that our kids and grandkids can live in a free and good world after we're gone. We want freedom to continue to exist. Libertarian freedom is one of the greatest concepts in history. And so as followers of Christ... We need to recognize the importance of our command to live as faithful citizens of the United States. We do that by properly recognizing where God has placed us, where he's placed us. We avoid two traps that people in our country fall into. We don't worship our country, and we don't despise our country. People do both of those. 
We don't worship our country. That is, our country is a great place to live. Freedom is one of the greatest ideas ever. Our country is wonderful, but it's not our ultimate hope as Christians. We don't give God-like status to our country. But we also don't despise our country like many other people are doing today. You know, George Washington owned slaves, so everything about him is tainted, right? He was a horrible president. No, go, go read a biography of him and, and, and then actually learn who he was. I promise you, if you look hard enough, you will find deplorable things with even the greatest figures of history. You will, because only Jesus is holy. Every other historical figure is not holy. They're going to have spots on their, on their past. That doesn't mean we gloss over the sins of the past. We, we very much call out the evils of things like slavery, but we do so in a way that doesn't treat the past as all bad. As Christians, we live as faithful and good citizens of society. We love our country without worshiping our country, and we do so by carrying out that Genesis 2 mandate in our country of taking care of and cultivating the garden we live in. So let's talk about what it means to be a biblical citizen today in a country that is honestly getting to be more and more like the Roman Empire. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 17. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Remember, 1 Peter is written to um, a, a, a church. So when we, it's important for you to know that going in, because when he says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, he's not talking to a geopolitical nation there. He's talking to the church, the blood-bought sinners that make up the people of God on the earth. And in each generation, the church is called to the same task. Be in the world, but not of the world. Be for the good of the world, but recognize it's not your home. That's what it looks like to be a biblical American citizen. We love the land that we live in, but that's not ultimately our home. We're part of a kingdom that's not of this world. We're proud to be an American, but our citizenship is in heaven. So before we can talk about being faithful citizens, we must recognize that America is not our ultimate home. We have a greater allegiance to the kingdom of heaven. The Christian church is not an American institution. It's a kingdom that transcends geopolitical lines. Peter describes the church in five ways in verses 9 and 10. The, the, we're going to talk about the um, nation that we are as a church called out of the world, but then how do we live in the world, verses 11 through 17. So he, he describes the church as five things. First, a chosen race. Notice how much these terms mimic the Old Testament and how Israel was described. This was the point of Israel. 
Israel was meant to be the catalyst that would bring about the church of the New Testament. As we read Exodus and as we preach, as we go through Exodus for the next several um, months, think about that. The people that we're reading about are meant to be the catalyst by which Jesus is going to come and establish the church. That's the goal. So the things that God sets up in Israel are what's going to become of the church. So that it's no longer about being born into a particular bloodline or a specific country. It's, it's, it's something else. We, we live in a great country. It has a lot of issues, but we live in a great place. There's a reason this is the most immigrated to place in the world. But we don't fall into the trap of reading the Bible as about America. Because it's not. It's about the church. The church is that chosen race. It's not any one particular ethnicity. It's people of all ethnicities on the planet who have built their lives on the cornerstone of Jesus through faith. This means you have more in common with a Christian in the Middle East than you do with an atheist in America. You have more brotherhood with a Japanese Christian than you do with a South Georgian that doesn't know Jesus because we're part of a new race. We're part of a spiritual ethnicity. We're part of a kingdom that will never pass away. We're also a royal priesthood. You'll see, what does that mean? It means that every one of us is a priest. We don't need to go into a box in a room and talk to a priest about our deep private sins because all of us are priests. What does it mean that you're a priest? Well, I think three things. One, you can approach God on your own. You don't need somebody else to go before God for you. You can do that. Um, you are able to pray to God anytime. You're able to approach a holy God anytime, anywhere. Hebrews 4 says you can do that with boldness. Secondly, you can serve others spiritually. Like, you don't have to bring people to me to get them saved. You're able to lead them to Christ yourself. And you're also an active participant in worship. You're not a passive observer of this gathering. This isn't a spectator sport where Harleen and I are performing a sport and you're just standing in the stands watching. No, we're all playing a part here. They're also a holy nation. The third one there, the holy nation. The church is a nation. God's nation on the earth, defined by people, not by geopolitical lines. Our church and all churches are meant to be something like an embassy of heaven on the earth. Let's think about an embassy for a second. Do you know what an embassy is? So a lot of nations around the world have a U.S. embassy at it, right? So if, if I go to Japan as an American citizen... I can freely walk into the, U, to the U.S. Embassy in Japan, right? And when I go in there, uh, it, it's, it's, an, it's a piece of American culture plopped down in the middle of Japan, right? If the, Japan, if the Japanese army attacks the American Embassy, it's seen as an attack on America, even though it's in Japan. A Japanese person cannot enter the American Embassy without, without getting permission, even if it's an emergency. Often embassies are decorated like an American place, so you'll have American architecture, you'll have American food. You can get a, you know, a, a hamburger with pickle and mustard right there in the middle of Japan. It's essentially a piece of American culture planted in another nation, and that's what the church is. Mount Zion Baptist Church, and any church for that matter, is a piece of heaven's culture planted in Chula, Georgia, or planted wherever that church is. People should be able to come in here and see an imperfect picture of what heaven is like. We're a holy nation. We're also a people, verse 9, we're a people for God's own possession. Jesus ransomed you if you are saved. You are a prisoner of the kingdom of Satan. 
You were born into sin. You were not a good person at birth. You were an enemy of God. You were a captive of the world. And Jesus came and paid for you with his blood. He possessed you. Jesus came and paid the ransom so that you can be freed. Our sin had us captive, holding us ransom, and the ransom price was spotless blood. Anything less would not do, and Jesus came and died and paid for us with his spotless blood. He paid the ransom price. He purchased us. He he possessed us. He purchased us for his own possession. That meant at the cross, Jesus declared that he wanted you. He wanted you. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need any of us. He existed long before we were here, and he'll exist long after we're dead. He didn't need us. He didn't save us out of obligation. He died for you because he wants you, because he loves you, because he wanted to have you as his own possession. And finally, the fifth thing that the church is in the world that it lives, we are proclaimers. Proclaimers. We're to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. You are all these things, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession. You're all those things that you might be a proclaimer, a proclaimer of the excellencies of Jesus. Have you heard about the excellencies of Jesus? Have you heard about his goodness? Have you heard about his grace and his mercy? Have you heard about his love? Have you heard about his faithfulness and his power and how personal he is? And the fact that he knows everything, and the fact that he, he, how wonderful he is. Have you heard about his excellencies? Then we proclaim it. We announce it. We say, let me tell you about this excellent Jesus that I know. That's the point of church. We don't exist for us all to have all of our preferences. Frankly, church is not about us. We don't exist just to have something to do on the weekends, though we want you here. We exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost and dying world. We exist to make disciples. That is our calling from Jesus. We must be about this in every way. Why are we so often concerned with pointless stuff when there's lost people in our lives? We are saved for this. The church exists for this, and we must be about this. So that's that's who we are as a church. Now, we live in a nation. We live in a nation, verses 11 through 17. We live in a nation that has a lot of good things about it, also has a lot of darkness in it. So how do we live as people called out of darkness into marvelous light in the country that we live in? How do we do that? We're a kingdom not of this world, but we're citizens of an earthly nation. So what do we do? Peter lays out three things. Three things that we do as citizens in verses 11 through 17. First, verse 11 We abstain from the passions of the flesh. We abstain from the passions of the flesh because we're sojourners and exiles. Though we are citizens of our nation, we're sojourners and exile from the world because we don't belong to the world. We've been called out of it. So we abstain from the passions of the flesh. We live in a nation full of sinful passions. Though our nation is great, our culture is broken. Our culture is broken. We can name so many ways that our culture is full of sinful passions. We can start with sexual sin, the 31 flavors of it. God created sex as a very good thing. Our culture has turned it profane to the point that a person's value and worth is found in their sexuality. When it is put forth that sexuality is what makes you human, 
people feast on it, and they try and find it in every way that they can because they need it to have personhood. But we abstain from that. We abstain from always needing to be entertained. That's another passion of the flesh in our culture. Our culture simply knows nothing of how to be bored. Be quiet. Be still. If we have 15 seconds of free time, we check Facebook. We don't know how to just sit there for 15 seconds and not do anything. It's why we check our phones right when we wake up in the morning, even before we're out of bed sometimes. It's not making us any happier. We just don't know what to do otherwise. For most people, our iPhones might as well be an appendage to our body because it's in our hand more than it's not. We do it without even thinking about it. I can walk up and down that aisle to go back and talk to Chris and Sydney about something, and I pull my phone out and check it real quick while I'm walking. Don't even realize that I'm doing it. We don't even think that's weird. That's just what we do. It's like my wristwatch. It's just always there. We don't see this as passions of the flesh because it doesn't feel sinful. You know, drinking and, 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 you know, sleeping around feels sinful, but wasting an entire weekend, you know, watching a whole season of law and order, that doesn't feel sinful, so we wouldn't think it's wrong. But it's wasting your life. Spending six hours of time over the course of a day on Facebook doesn't feel sinful, but it's so detrimental to you. Science proves it's making you more depressed. And it's also showing that you actually do have time to pray and study God's word. And then vanity. Vanity is another passion of the flesh in our day. Uh, obsession in our culture with how we look. It's the man who spends every day in the gym trying to make himself have bigger muscles. Pumping himself full of protein powder, just hoping it's going to make him bigger. Because he thinks the only way he could ever be awesome is to have big muscles. In high school, I, I thought that very thing. And so I would walk around my high school with my chest puffed up. I look like an idiot doing it, but that's what I did because that's what I believed about myself, that the only way people would ever find me valuable is if my pecs were big. But you're going to lose that one day. Someday you're not going to be able to bench press 350 pounds anymore. I never could, but you're not going to be able to. Someday the six-pack is going to disappear. Christ has more for you than how you look. Be healthy, but don't find your value in it. It's the woman who is so subconscious about her appearance that the slightest wrinkle or the slightest bit of weight added on makes her hate herself. She buys more and more clothes and, make, and makeup to make herself look more beautiful because she's convinced that's what is going to make her valuable. She can't be in a bathing suit at the beach if she's going to have a roll on her stomach. Woman, women, your value is not in your physical appearance, and it never will be. No matter how much makeup and clothes the culture tells you to buy, you're going to get old. And true beauty is not found in that. Proverbs 31, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is greatly praised. Christ sees beauty in you, not based on your weight or your youth, but on your soul. He values you greatly, and he's going to remake your aging body. So stop listening to the lie of the world and of our culture that you're going to be given value based on your physical beauty. And one more, one more, speaking evil of people. It's the spirit of our day because it's so juicy. It's so juicy. It just feels so good to go online and start posting stuff about how terrible other people are. It makes you feel like you're changing the world. 
The problem is you start by complaining about Kamala Harris and it spills over into you complaining about your neighbor or your friend or your spouse. And you don't realize that all of that time you're speaking evil of some bad person has actually corrupted your heart and made you a fountain of malice and slander. Rather, Ephesians tells us, let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. That's what it tells us. We are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Abstain. Don't participate. That's what it means. Don't go near them. It's not a thing of, you can do it, just make sure you have moderation. No, no, abstain from them. Notice all the things I named have sinful patterns behind them. Abstain from the sinful passions. Why? What does verse 11 say? They wage war against your soul. They literally want to destroy you. That's why you abstain from them. You, you abstain because they want to wreak havoc on who you are. We declare war on those things, and we abstain from them. Secondly, verse 12, we live beautiful lives. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The word honorable there, that's how it's translated in my translation. If you go to the Greek of that word, it's, it's not the word agathos. Uh, you don't need to know this Greek stuff, but the word agathos means good or righteous. That's not the word there. The word there is a different word called kalos. That's the Greek word, kalos. It means beautiful, beautiful. Live a, he says there, keep your conduct among the Gentiles kalos. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles beautiful, beautiful. Good versus beautiful. It's, we're not just trying to live an honorable good life. We're trying to live a beautiful life. It's great that you don't smoke or drink, but the question is, do people look at your life and think that, and see Christ and think that's beautiful? You know, we like beautiful things, don't we? I look at the sunset, and it's beautiful. I look at the night sky, and it's beautiful, or a waterfall, or my wife's face, or my son's laugh, or, or whatever. I, I want to look at it. I want to hear it and see it more and more. I can't look away. Living a beautiful life is where you live, not just good morally, but so joy-filled and generous and sacrificial and Christ-centered that people can't look away because of how beautiful your life is. Have you ever known people like that? We live above reproach. That's what other passages would call us to, above reproach. So that if they speak evil against you, they have nothing to say, nothing to say. We're not at home in this world. They're going to speak evil against us. It doesn't matter what we try to do. If you remain faithful to Christ and his word, you will be spoken evil against by somebody. Plenty of people are willing to compromise what Christ has said to not be hated from the world but Christ was hated, you will be too. We live our lives above reproach. We are called to live a beautiful life that nothing bad could ever be said about us. Why? Look at verse 12. So that people might be saved. That they will glorify God on the day of visitation. That's what it says. What does that mean? Well, it's a reference to the second coming. One day God is going to come and visit the world. That's the point. That, that when Jesus comes... They may glorify God just because of your life. They're unbelievers, though. How are they going to glorify God when Jesus returns if they're being judged by him? Simply this. Your conduct of life changed their life. They saw that there was something to Jesus, and they followed him, all because you lived a beautiful life above reproach before them, and they sought to know why. 
Finally, in the country we live in, verses 13 through 17, we submit to authority. We submit to authority. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, verse 13. Be subject to every human institution. Understand the culture these Christians lived in. Caesar was viewed as a god among men. Emperor worship was the religion of the land. It was the law of the land. The Romans didn't care if you worshiped Jesus. You just had to worship Caesar too. Christians were not persecuted for worshiping Jesus. They were persecuted for not worshiping Caesar. They were persecuted by the Romans because the Romans thought they were being unpatriotic. Peter's telling them from the beginning, these are human institutions. They're not God. Be subject to every human institution. So, do we submit to the government in everything? No. We submit as far as they are human institutions. If they start trying to be divine, we don't submit to that. If they start making decrees that violate God's word, we can't submit to that. This is not what you think, though. It's if they violate God's word, not your opinion. If they make a law saying you have to worship the president, you refuse and break that law. If they raise your taxes higher than you want to pay it, you pay those taxes. We, we only practice civil disobedience when it directly violates what Scripture says, not just what we don't like. And we submit no matter who those rulers and authorities are. Notice he says you submit to the emperoress and to the governor. Understand there was one emperor, and then the emperor had various governors that went to each city to kind of rule over that area. That's how it worked. Um, governors were sent to different regions to do the work of the emperor. Pilate, you remember crucified Jesus, he was a governor sent by Caesar to Jerusalem. That's how it was. You submit to all authority, whether high or low. You submit to the president, and kids, you submit to your principal at school. That's how it works. The emperor in this day was a bad guy. He was a bad guy. He expected society to worship him. He would crucify you if you didn't. That is, if you tried to stop oppression, if you tried to not follow some unbiblical command that he gave, he would crucify you. He would strip you naked and nail you to a tree. And Peter says, submit to that guy. Submit to that guy. This is important in our highly politicized culture that we live in because we submit to the governance of politicians we disagree with. We don't just sit around and mock them all the time. We submit to them. We desire their good. What do we gain if Joe Biden fails as president? The only people harmed by that are us. The rich politicians in Washington will be fine. We submit to the government because God has set the government up. Look, it's there in verses, um, it's there in verse 15. This is the purpose of government right here, 215. I'm sorry, it's actually verse 14. The 15 is saying it's the will of God that, that they punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. That's the purpose of government. God set up government to keep societal order. He established it to punish evil and reward good so that evil receives due punishment and is brought to an end and so that good is held up in how society would function. Why isn't that the, what the government does then? Why is it so often the opposite? They reward evil and punish good. Because we live in a sinful world, and sin has corrupted everything. So we, of course, strive for a government that carries out its proper purpose. 
And in America, we have a privilege that Peter's readers didn't have. We elect our leaders. So as far as you can, you vote wisely in that way. It's God's will that we obey. It's, it, it is God's will that we obey authority, verse 15. And that by doing it, we may silence the ignorant people. God set all this up. He created it. And he, 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 he's the one who ultimately elects all leaders. Daniel 2.21. God changes times and season. He removes kings and sets up kings. That's what he does. God has been the deciding vote in every presidential election in history. He chooses every governor, every senator, every representative, every mayor. He even chooses something as seemingly small as a PTA president. God is sovereign. Maybe you ask, why do we get bad presidents then? Um, there's a theologian out there. It's slipping my mind which one, but um, he said, when God wants to judge a nation, he sends them corrupt leaders. So pray for our nation. He is sovereign over all. So it does not escape him to be over all of this. We submit to honor this kind of authority. Do you see that? Verse 13, be subject to every leader. Verse 17, honor everyone. Honor the emperor. That's what he says. Really? Honor the emperor? The guy who crucifies people? Yeah, honor that guy. Honor him because he's in a position of authority that God has set up. Honor him because of the position he holds. But there's a difference. Honor him. Do not worship him. That's what he's saying. Christians were persecuted because they said, we will honor Caesar as our governing leader, but we will not worship him. Is it just governing authorities, though? No. We submit to our elected officials. We submit and honor the police force. We submit and honor our boss at work and those in authority over us. We submit and honor the laws of the land. We don't disobey them. If we do, government is there to punish that evil. So how do we honor authority as we come to an end here? How do we honor authority? Well, first, as I said, we don't worship them. Well, you have one God, and that's Jesus. Worship him alone. Don't worship any president or governor or police or any such thing. They're not your savior. We trust authority. That's one way that we honor them. We trust them. Our age completely distrusts authority. Anybody in authority is immediately suspicious. We lead the way as Christians in obeying this passage and trusting those in authority. We don't assume that they have skeletons in their closet just because we saw something on Facebook. And we pray for them. We pray for them. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 says that we're to pray for all people in authority. You should pray regularly for our governing leaders. Like, really? R really pray for them. Have you ever prayed for our governing leaders by name? There's a reason I do that in the worship service sometimes. Scripture calls me to. Join us tonight. We're going to pray for a lot of things related to our nation. One thing we're going to pray for is our elected leaders by name. Pray specific prayers for them. Don't pray generic prayers for them. Pray specific prayers rooted in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the lie of the gospel. So pray that God would open their eyes. Pray for their salvation. Pray for Joe Biden's salvation. Pray for Kamala Harris's salvation. Pray for Nancy Pelosi's salvation. What does it say about your heart if you refuse to pray for a person to be saved? Pray for them to have wisdom. Pray for the will of our leaders to be in the hand of God no matter how much they refuse him. Pray for their good and pray that they would flourish. And finally, most importantly, how do you honor 
our leaders, maybe this goes in with the first one of, of not worshiping them. You keep the gospel front and center in your heart. The worst thing you can do for our leaders is think they're ultimately the saviors of the land. Some of them want you to think that, but they're not. Like, like no political candidate that you follow is the Messiah. Don't treat them as such. There is only one name under heaven by which we must be saved, and he's not an American. When man needed salvation, God did not give us an elephant or a donkey. He gave us a lamb. Governing leaders are not your savior. Christ is. Christ has come to be our savior. Keep the gospel front and center in your heart. The only hope for the renewal of this world is the preaching of the gospel. Everything else tries to renew this world, but it's working to plunk fruit off of a dying tree rather than bringing the tree back to life. Dying trees are going to have rotten fruit. We don't put our hope in elected leaders. We put our hope in the gospel. So I ask you, have you placed your hope in the gospel? I'm not asking if you walked an aisle at some point. I'm not asking if you at some point asked the Lord to forgive you for where you had failed him. I'm not asking if you're a law-abiding citizen or if you're patriotic or if you're a member of this church. I'm asking, is the death and resurrection of Christ what your salvation and hope is based on? When you die and get to heaven, are you going to tell God, I can come in because I prayed a prayer at some point in front of Mount Zion, or I, uh, I can come in because I've been baptized, or because I was a member of a church, or because I was a good person, better than most. Uh, I can come in because I voted for the right people. On that day, the only answer you can possibly have is, I can't come in. I'm not worthy. But Jesus died my death and rose again, so that I can't come in. Is that how you see your salvation? That is your only hope. Your hope is not in the White House. Your hope is in the gospel. If you don't have hope in the gospel, today's the day of salvation. Call on the name of Jesus, and he will save you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that even though we live in, even though we as the church are called out of darkness, we're called into your Light, even though we're not at home in the nation we live in, we, we do have a good nation that you've put us in. There's a lot worse places that we could be. We thank you for our freedom. We thank you for um, so many great things about our nation. Liberty and freedom and um, unity of people, even though our nation feels divided, Lord, people who are committed to um, seeing us continue on. But, Lord, we, we know that we also have a culture that is filled with sin, filled with passions of the flesh, filled with hatred of God, day by day, more and more, having just come out of a month that celebrated sin. Lord, we, we live in a nation that is broken. So may we be gospel witnesses in the midst of it. May we be people who proclaim Jesus as the hope and salvation of our nation. It's not in an elected official. It's not in um, anything else. It's in Christ alone. And so may we proclaim that, and may we cherish that in our heart. Bless our nation. Give us a, a good future where our kids and grandkids can live after we're gone. And, Lord, may that be formed by the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name.